0: Hello, and welcome to the weekly market podcast from BNP Paribas Asset Management. I'm Daniel Morris, Senior Investment Strategist, and this week I have the pleasure to be joined by Mark Lewis, our Chief Sustainability Strategist. So we'll be talking about some very interesting developments uh, in the sustainability space. Before we do that, a quick update on what's been going on in the markets, economic data that we've had recently, outlooks. And in general, certainly in the equity markets, also in high yield, we generally see a continued bit of nervousness, reasons for that in Europe now, the risks of renewed lockdowns, uh, while of course we're going to have U.S. election turbulence and, well, perhaps even turmoil between now and at least November 3rd, if not perhaps after that. That said, it still is or has been primarily a tech sell-off, not necessarily that much of a broad market sell-off. The U.S. market... Uh, tech sector is down 11%, but if you look at the rest of the market, it's only down about five, so pretty normal levels of volatility in Europe down just 3%, and even with this concern in Europe that you're going to see increasing restrictions. The data that we've gotten recently, particularly the purchasing manager indices, give us a picture of a slowing recovery, but still a recovery, but exceptions to that, and the exceptions which highlight also the risks are the services sectors in Germany and in France, where exactly uh, potentially you see increasing restrictions in the services sector, the most susceptible to that. The advantage that Germany has had with its manufacturing sector is in general, we've seen more resilient trade uh, in the recovery from the pandemic and Germany certainly benefits from that. One other thing that you may have missed uh, really quite uh, surprisingly strong data from the U.S. in the housing market. So We don't want to ignore uh, the support to the U.S. economy from what is really a quite buoyant housing market, supported by, of course, low interest rates, uh, but really just maybe some of the longer-term impacts from the pandemic uh, as people think quite carefully uh, about where they live. The other moves that we've seen in the markets that uh, have been notable uh, – Fairly strong jump in the dollar, and that's not just been uh, only against the euro, that's been pretty broad base, which does suggest it's perhaps just uh, a more broad risk-off move, a bit of risk-off sentiment, people looking for a safe haven in the dollar. Uh, at the same time, you've actually seen gold sell off, and some people have actually tied that to the movement in the dollar. We think it's actually driven more by the movement that we've had in real rates Real interest rates, which have risen in the U.S., as you've seen, inflation expectations fall. So that's a dynamic, the correlation that we really see uh, behind gold. And so we really need to watch what happens with inflation expectations. And then finally, the other part of the broad investment landscape where you've seen uh, a bit of negative movement is in high yield, but honestly, pretty resilient given everything that's been going on, uh, though certainly support from central banks, in particular the Fed. Uh, is a pretty strong reason for that resilience that we see in credit in general. Okay, so now let's turn to our main topic for the week. And Mark, uh, I noticed that the European Commission announced plans last week to target a 55% cut in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 as part of a broader European Green Deal program aimed at reaching climate neutrality by 2050. Right. The question is, do you think this is realistic?
1: Yeah. Hi, Daniel. Well, I think uh, my the way I would answer that question is really um, in, in two ways. First of all, um, there's the broader philosophical question. Is it realistic not to try to get to net zero? When you think about um, the news we are confronted with now on a, on a weekly basis, it's hard to think of a week this year where there hasn't been a major natural catastrophe story. Uh, the Californian wildfires have been... Um, dominating our screens over the last uh, three or four weeks. We had the Australian wildfires that began the year. We've had hurricanes. We've had typhoons. We've had the permafrost in Siberia burning. That is a real wake up call. So, I think on one level, it's not realistic to carry on denying that urgent action is necessary. And I emphasize the word urgency because climate change has been on the policy agenda for some time now, but it's really the urgency with which you deal with it that has been lacking. So, I think um, it's not realistic anymore to say we don't need to take urgent action. So, on a political level, I very much welcome what the European Union has uh, committed to. And then Of course, the 55% target for 2030 is a staging post to net zero emissions by 2050. Uh, It's important to emphasize that. In in some ways, you can think of this as uh, the EU is legislating, putting into European law a legally binding target that the European Union be carbon neutral by 2050 and raising the target for 2030 to 55%. Uh, emissions reduction compared with 1990 levels versus the 40 percent that we currently have on the books is a signal. It's a declaration of intent about how serious the European Union is to get there. Now, the second answer to your question, which I suspect is the one you really wanted me to answer, is, is it realistic in the sense of doability? Can we get there? Um, i think fifty five percent by twenty thirty is definitely doable um in the sense that we're already decarbonizing the power sector in europe very quickly. and the uh, one wouldn't want to emphasize it in this way, but the one of the uh, impacts of the covid pandemic, the long-term structural impact I think is going to be a structural change in a number of um behavioral patterns uh for example commuting to work air travel and so on this is this is going to have an impact on emissions structurally not just this year or next year i believe and at the margin that will also help Europe get to the target. Uh, I'm not saying that's how we want to get there, but clearly, realistically, it is going to have an impact on, on emissions. Uh, but more importantly, I think um, the cost of renewable energy technologies is falling all the time. Spectacular reductions over the last decade, but the the costs are still falling. You've got battery technology, which is the, the key to the whole thing, really, improving, because I say it's the key because it, it provides The storage optionality that we're going to need if renewable energy is indeed going to be able to decarbonize the power sector completely. And one other recent, very interesting um, component of the EU decarbonization strategy is the green hydrogen dimension to this. In July of this year, so two months ago, the European Commission published a green hydrogen vision for 2050. And again, with a staging post to 2030, and green hydrogen is going to be very important because there are some parts of the European economy and energy system that you won't be able to decarbonize via renewable electricity alone. So scaling up green hydrogen is going to be a very big story over the next decade, um, and I think uh, we know how to do that. Now, we have a template. We've, we've successfully geared up, scaled up renewable energy over the last decade, frankly, in a way that very few people thought possible 10 years ago certainly 15 years ago. So I think we have that as a template in terms of how we scale up other decarbonisation technologies. So I think it is doable, and I think it's vital, and I think it's urgent.
0: Now, I'm going to ask how this relates to the EU carbon market. Now, perhaps for some of our listeners who are not particularly familiar with it, so maybe first question, could you explain a bit, give a bit of an introduction for those people that aren't familiar, and then help us understand what the consequences are of these changes?
1: Sure. So, the European carbon market is a cap-and-trade emissions scheme where uh, 50% of the European economy is currently covered by an obligation to surrender one allowance permitting you to emit one ton of CO two for every ton that you that you emit. Um, the sectors covered by the EU ETS, the European Emissions Trading System are the energy intensive ones, so power generation, steel manufacturing, cement manufacturing, oil refining, pulp and paper, et cetera, and aviation uh, is also included. Um, what you do is you you the regulator sets a cap on emissions and that cap declines over time. And um, then the price of the emissions allowances in the market, the cost of pollution, if you like, is set by the interaction between supply and demand. And as the, quote, as the allocation of allowances declines over time, the expectation, other things being equal, is that the price would rise. Of course, it will depend on the level of emissions, and COVID has had a big impact on emissions uh, this year. But we have this more ambitious target that is being set. uh, To come to the second part of your question, Daniel, Um, if you're increasing the uh, ambition, the level of ambition for reducing emissions to 55% on an EU-wide basis by 2030, compared with the current target, 40%, clearly what that means is you will have to... To tighten the cap in the EU ETS quite substantially. And that will mean there will be fewer allowances available to the companies that have this obligation to comply with, to submit one allowance per tonne uh, emitted. So um, you're tightening the supply effectively, and you're tightening it uh, pretty uh, pretty significantly. Um, other things being equal, uh, that means you, you would expect prices to rise. Now, of course. Also depends on what happens to demand between now and then. And we've had this hit to demand this year from the uh, COVID um, crisis. But at the same time, market participants are very cognizant that the 2030 target itself, the tighter 2030 target itself, is a stepping stone to the ultimate target now, which will be legally binding, as I said in response to your first question, Daniel, by uh, 2050, net zero by 2050. So the basic point is, um, supply is going to get tighter from now on. uh, And uh, therefore, companies are going to be much more reluctant to sell allowances when they have them even if in in a given trading year they might have more than they need because they will be thinking all the time about their future uh, future requirements so i think that's the logic you you ratchet up the targets the the price goes up and the other point I would make is um, we are getting to the point where the European power sector is well on the way to decarbonizing. We've been trading at a pricing level in the European carbon market for the last six or seven months, which is above the so-called fuel switching level. That's the the fuel. The fuel switching level is the price uh, the carbon price you need to incentivize gas power plants to run ahead of coal power plants. Now, the reason that's important is because ever since 2005, when this market began, it's really been the fuel switching uh price that has driven the, 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 the carbon price. That's been the pricing paradigm, if you like. Um, what the market seems to be signaling, therefore, with the price trading above the upper end of the fuel switching range, range is that we now need to start thinking about the level of the carbon price that delivers decarbonisation in some of these other industrial sectors beyond the power sector. And uh, in all likelihood, that price is higher. You know, So um, I think this is all about um, the having a, a clear roadmap to net zero by 2050, tighten the target by 2030 as a stepping stone to that, and um, make allowances scarcer and let the price mechanism do its job and, and decarbonize these other industrial sectors beyond the power sector.
0: So a lot going on in Europe, and clearly Europe's been at the forefront of the trading systems. To what extent do you see the EU ETS or emissions trading system as a carbon pricing tool that could be employed beyond Europe?
1: Yes, well, I I do think there is a lot that can be learned from Europe by other jurisdictions that are now starting to think about uh, emissions reductions policies and putting a price on emissions. Um, China is obviously uh, the, the, the most important country in the world as far as fighting climate change is concerned, because for some time now they've been the world's largest emitter. And China is... Uh, moving towards the implementation of a nationwide carbon trading scheme. Um, And we don't have final clarity on exactly when that will be introduced. They do have a number of pilot schemes in some of the uh, countries' regions already. But really, it's the nationwide scheme in China that I think uh, everybody is waiting for. But I'm pretty confident that will happen over the next uh, two to three years. Uh, Korea has already got one Um, California has got a very comprehensive one California, fifth largest economy in the world on a standalone basis uh, already has an emissions trading scheme that covers more of the economy than the European one does it covers about 85% of Californian emissions already includes some of those sectors I mentioned a few moments ago that the European scheme does not yet include such as transportation and buildings Um, so I think there's a lot that can be learned by other jurisdictions from Europe but Europe is also learning from California I think in, in terms of how to include some of these other sectors. So the whole world really uh, needs to think much more seriously about pricing carbon. And the most efficient way to do that is really uh, to develop a market so that you can have the price mechanism driving uh, efficiency savings and, and giving that economic incentive to produce industrial goods more efficiently, to produce heat and energy more efficiently and in a less carbon intensive way.
0: Thank you very much, Mark. So to recap then, as Mark pointed out, we've had more than enough uh, indicators uh, recently that concerns about global warming, climate change are certainly justified, Uh, wildfires uh, in California, Siberia, and so on. So he had a really excellent response to my question, whether or not these new objectives uh, from the European Commission are realistic, but really the question should be, is it realistic not to try? So what we're seeing is perhaps a quite welcome sense of urgency rising sense of urgency on the part of governments and this declaration of intent from uh from europe is certainly encouraging importantly though mark does believe that the target is realistic so kind of moving in in the right direction and on a path uh that makes sense uh, if we think then about the implications in particular for the carbon market for the emissions trading system Uh, Bottom line is that we're likely to see uh, the cap in emissions uh, is going to be tighter. So that means that the price of carbon will rise and that should reduce its use, which is exactly the whole point of the system. And encouragingly, we're seeing signs that China is moving towards a nationwide carbon trading scheme. Uh, And then, of course, already California quite uh, far along the way and some good uh, sharing of experience and knowledge between California and Europe. So really, uh, despite all the challenges, some good progress, some good news over the last week. So that's it for us this week. Thank you very much for joining us. If you have any further questions, please do not hesitate to reach out to your BNP Paribas Asset Management contact. And with that, we'll say goodbye and take care.